Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB's Managing Editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So today we are so excited to give you a conversation that we had with one of my heroes. I know also one of Dea and Kate's heroes. He's not one of my heroes. <laughs> yeah, maybe <laughs> calling him a hero, maybe a, a most beloved villain or something mm, like that. Yeah, that's nice. So we have an interview with John Waters, the famous film director, of course, and we're speaking with him both about kind of queer history and politics and how he sees the trajectory of his career, but all around this new memoir of his called Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Filth Elder. So Dea, just tell listeners a little bit about this interview. It was a very fun interview to do. Who can you think of who's a a more fun person to talk to than John Waters? I mean, he's really, he's my ideal, maybe dinner guest too, I think. Totally. In my fake dinner party. Fun to talk to. And you actually learn something. Like I've been telling everybody about splooshing this past week. Oh, yeah, that's right. We learned so much. Right. (laughs) Splooshing is sex with food. It's, I think, specifically dressing in clothing and sitting on a pie. Yes. So that, so he taught us about splooshing. (laughs) He taught us about, what was the other one? Maybe uh, we can't talk about the other one. Well, there the was, one we talked be... about felching before felching. and how he had actually right. like... I had never heard of that But that's in the book, actually, yeah. Yeah. And felching, we probably shouldn't define for listeners. <laughs> <laughs> use, use your imagination. Santorum involved. Use yeah. your imagination and then make it more filthy than your imagination initially <laughs> made it. And then um, maybe make it a little bit more filthy than that. Yeah. And then you're probably about near where felching is. For um, our straight listeners, just ask your best gay friend. Yeah, straight listeners, listen, just give up. Yeah. Just don't <laughs> don't even worry about it. Yes, he's so much fun. He's so much fun. He's lovely. I was also just a pleasure and kind of an honor to meet him. Totally, totally. And so yeah. quick. Like, that's the Ugh. other thing. I just wish, and this is, I'm not being ageist here, like, but just I'm always impressed with people who have been doing this sort of thing for such a long time and yet still feel as fresh and with it and conversant as they ever did. Like, it's totally. really, really enviable. Yeah. It's also fun to start a sentence with, I'm not being ageist here. I think we should, we should do that <laughs> we more. Should, we, we should do that more that. often. <laughs> no, no, I like it. I think we should keep it. Just a heads up to our listeners, when we head into the conversation, you will hear not only the wonderful John Waters' voice, Medea's voice, and my voice, but you will also hear our lovely third co-host, Kate Wolf. All right. Let's get, we get to it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. It is a real treat to have John Waters with us in the studio today. John certainly needs no introduction, as many of you will already know him as the voice and vision behind films like Pink Flamingos, Hairspray, Cecil B. Demented, and one of my personal favorites, Serial Mom. In addition to his celluloid work, John is also the author of several books, including Shock Value and Role Models. He joins us today to discuss his latest book, the quasi-memoir, quasi-advice compendium, Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Filth Elder. Mr. Know-It-All recounts Waters' experience as a filth-to-fame filmmaker, with lots of behind-the-scenes looks at the sausage-making of his films and his wild ride from renegade filmmaker to bankable celebrity to a glittering light somewhere between the margins and the mainstream. Welcome to the show, John. We're thrilled to have you. And I should add, and back down again. And back down again, right. (laughs) Thank you for having me. So, John, you begin this book by talking about becoming respectable. And I wanted to ask you, when did you start feeling that? Probably after Hairspray on Broadway won the Tony. That late? Yeah, yeah. I mean, people, 
I always had an audience. People came to my movies from the very beginning when we started. Mm-hmm. But the audience was all minorities that didn't fit in their own minorities. And we also got all negative reviews, which we used in the ads. <laughs> that couldn't happen today. It was a different time. It was a different cultural kind of war going on. So I think what all it means is I've been doing this for 50 years that if they can't get rid of you, eventually they have to start respecting you. And I also only just made fun of things I loved my whole life, so I don't think I was ever mean. And I think that I never really changed. I didn't change that much. The last film I made was NC-17. I had battles with censors. And my new book, Mr. Know-It-All, certainly has things in it that are hardly easily digested by some members of the reading public, I would think. But who knows? Nobody gets mad anymore, which is good. I never wanted to make people mad. I wanted to surprise them and make them laugh. Something that I was so impressed by in the book is that the first chapter starts with some advice, and then the chapters that follow are kind of like a practicum of how to apply yourself as an artist. Well, it's um, how to negotiate and how to get your way through whatever system, and to warn you that the more money you get, the less freedom you're going to have. That's a math problem. But I think Hollywood was very fair to me in the long run. When you fail and lose money, you still get paid big bucks. Mm-hmm. And I failed upwards, really, in Hollywood. But so how did you avoid, it seems like there's not that much self-doubt that goes into your process, that you get bad reviews, the movies lose money, and you don't think, huh, what should I do differently? You just think, how can I make my next movie? No, I try to think what I should do differently, always, because like when Desperate Living did the worst of my early movies, then I thought, I've got to change here. So video came out, so we made an R-rated movie with Tab Hunter and made a satire on a movie star. So I was always thinking of new ways. I always wanted to be commercial. I always wanted to make money because I wanted to continue to do them. And I knew that if they didn't, I couldn't. But I always had backup careers. I always had different ways to make money. I always was a businessman in a way, too. I knew how the businesses worked of every field I entered. I mean, I always read Variety. I read Publishers Weekly. I read whatever the trade paper is of whatever business you're trying to get in. I learned that, too. And there's nothing the matter with learning that because you can be the most brilliant painter in the world. But if you don't know what gallery to go to, you're not going to get discovered. Nobody comes knocking on your door and say, hey, I hear you're a good filmmaker. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. But did you ever suffer from any personal doubt about yourself as an artist? Oh, God, yeah. I remember when Desperate Living came out, we got the meanest review in Variety that was one paragraph, and it was an amateur night in the Psycho Ward. And I look back on it. Well, it is, kind of. Only I don't think we were amateurs because all the actors had made lots of movies with me and memorized 20 pages of dialogue in one take. So I don't really think they were amateurs, but they certainly were not Hollywood. And it was directed in a way that I was very influenced by the theater of the absurd and the theater of the ridiculous and the theater of cruelty and Artaud Mm. and all that crazy shouting and stuff in my early movies. So it wasn't the performers, it was my direction. Did you ever want to respond to these reviews by saying, hey, I am working within... A history here of no, other no, no. artists. You never respond to your reviews. It's a sign of an amateur. <laughs> yeah. Because okay. first of all, they get to rebut. And that means that the people that didn't read the bad review the first time will read it the second time. Yeah. I always say you read, I read my reviews. I don't believe people who say they don't. But I read the good ones twice, the bad ones once, and put them all away and never look at them again. But the ones you remember are the bad ones, unfortunately. So I actually wanted to say we've met before, but not in a place that I imagine you would remember. So back in, (laughs) so back in my senses, it was actually 2004. I'd have to look it up exactly. But I was at a um, performance. 
performance at the Neil Simon Theater on Broadway mm-hmm. of Hairspray when Harvey Firestein was starring. And I had to pee really badly. And I went to the bathroom and there was only one other person in the urinal next to me. And well, it was you. Did we cross swords? <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. But I was so I was so starstruck or urine struck that I turned to you and I was like, oh, you wrote this. And I said, I'm really enjoying it. But and I didn't write it. I didn't write the musical. Right. I wrote certainly the movie the musical was based on. And during that period, I went to the theater every night, probably, because it so was right when it was okay, starting out. Sense. And that's why I was not bored and went to take a pee. You know, <laughs> it was I had seen it so many thousands of times. And we were probably checking the new, I don't know, was it before it opened? Was it in previews? or was No, it, no, no, no. It, it had already, already opened. opened. Well, I did go there, not that much, but I went there, certainly, and took people and would go. Yeah. Well, you were very kind, because well, you told me, I'm yes, good. I did write that. Yeah. I also think it's pretty good. Yeah. And... I'm glad that you do, too. (laughs) Yes, I was gracious, which I try to always be to people that are, you know, I even when people come up when I'm eating and say, I hate to interrupt, I say, no, you don't. You just did. You just, yeah. But you bought me this dinner. Yeah. So Liberace always used to say, you like these coats? You should. You bought them for me. (laughs) Well, it is true. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, so Hairspray in the book you talk about is kind of your major success and one that kind of endures. Can you talk about, like, why do you think that particular film and then all of its iterations afterwards. Why is that connected with audiences so much for so it has, long a period of time? Because the fat girl stood for every person that ever felt like an outsider, mm, racial, okay. sexual, any kind of reason. And the fat girl got the guy, and she never did in any other movies. Right. And even on the real Buddy Dean show that I based it on, the girl that was on the committee said, a black girl could have gotten on quicker than a fat girl. She said no fat girl ever applied. Not one ever tried to get on. So it's the triumph yeah. of the ultimate outsider yeah, that everybody wants to see. And it was also a sneak attack in a way because it seemed innocent, but it does have two men singing a love song, and now that's performed in every high school in America. It encourages yeah. your kids to date different races. So I've always said, even racists like Harrisburg, right. which is so odd. <laughs> somehow it snuck in and it's still sneaking in and it's still playing everywhere. In the book, there's a wonderful chapter on kind of like on the yuppies and like leftist extremists, kind of a mix between. Per- well, that was my act bad chapter. The yippies, not sorry, yuppies. Sorry, God, <laughs> the yippies. I was, oh, I God, I ever terrible the yuppies. <laughs> but the yippies, I definitely did. And the only ones that I think today that are acting like the yippies are the satanic temple who do really humorous things to enforce the separation between church and state. So I'm for terrorism, that kind, using humor to mortify the enemy. Right. And I thought it frames your early films in a different way for me, thinking of them almost more like that as opposed to just campy. Well, they were political actions in a way. I mean, because there was an attack on good taste and it confused people. Regular gay people were uptight about them. Bikers liked them. Prisoners liked them. It was weird. And I look back and the closest to it was Johnny Knoxville's Jackass, I think. I think that movie, in a way, was anarchy. I remember I went to see it and it was all like blue collar dads and their straight sons watching people shove toys up their ass and, you know, and stuff. I thought, how did you do this? How did you cross this over? But he really did. And so he would have eaten dog feces. Oh, definitely. Definitely he would have, you know. So that's what I mean. I think he had the same attitude. So I guess going from that then to making a movie, you know, I remember Hairspray when it came out in the 80s. I had a video. I watched it all the time. It was like a family movie. And you say that. But it was a secret. Like Tracy Turnblad doesn't think her mother is trans. Right, right. It's, it's a secret between the audience and the actors. Right. Hmm. That the cast characters don't know. 
So, but how has it felt for you going from a more kind of outright provocation to a more? You say that that was the one. It was that, the most provocative, I think, hairspray. The hairspray it was snuck in the farthest. Exactly. Yeah. So you can still be provocative and sneak. That's in. the best way if yeah. they don't realize it and you influence people. That's why when I wrote that book, Make Trouble, which was my commencement speech that I did at RISD, I said, I don't want to be an outsider anymore. Everybody, don't you think both Trump and Obama would want to be considered outsiders? I want to be the insider. I want to be in the one that's snuck in and mm. gets things changed. I'm wondering also, I don't know if in terms of kind of like insider in the way that certain kinds of queer art forms have now become more mainstream. So I don't know if you caught, for example, what to me was somewhat of the yawn fest of the Met Costume Gala, proving perhaps that camp is a theme. Well, is I like wouldn't invite it. I didn't go. But I'm for the Met. You know, certainly I, I think they do great stuff. I looked at it and watched it. I bet everybody had fun. It was a costume ball. To me, it right. looked like they were in trick-or-treat outfits. So, you know what I mean? In a way, camp to me is something that was so bad it was good and didn't know it. It had an innocence to it. You yeah. can't go to the Met in couture with Anna Wintour and not know what you're doing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, so that's the thing. So it did revive a word that I've never heard anyone I know use in 20 years. I don't know anybody. Even the oldest gay square I know doesn't always say, that's a camp, Mary. I mean, I don't hear that much. Maybe See, I've, I may- do hear that a lot I from, never from a we younger travel generation. Of gay- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in the revival of Boys in the Band on Broadway. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, Young people say that? Yeah, people love camp. There's like a whole debate about what camp is. Well, maybe that's because of the new Met show. Then it did its job, though. I mean, before that. But, okay, the question here actually is to think about, because I associate a lot of your aesthetics. One of my favorite films of yours is Serial Mom, which I think is beautiful That is my best movie. But I don't think it's campy. You don't think it's campy? Like Kathleen Turner playing that? It's a satire about a true crime genre. And it was before OJ happened, and a lot of the stuff in there almost came in for true. No, campy to me would be Divine wasn't camp to me. Divine was punk. Mm, I didn't think of Divine as camp. Camp to me is, uh, you know, Showgirls was camp because it didn't realize it, no matter what he says today. He did not mean that to be funny. Busby Berkeley musicals. I mean, I'm thinking it was a secret gay word that Susan Sontag very intelligently explained to straight people. Mm. And that's how it became that famous essay. But today, I think camp became trash, trash became filth, and now it's just plain American humor. It's on every TV show. I think it's mainstream now. I don't think it's a hidden underworld thing that gay people share without the outside world knowing. I mean, I go to gay parades day, it's just straight people showing their tolerance and no gay people. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of camp and filth and all these things becoming mainstream, I wanted to ask you, do you think what bad taste is has changed? Well, I always thought I learned good taste. I thank my parents at the end of the book for raising me on such good taste that I knew the rules to make fun of it. Mm -hmm. And you do have to know the rules to make fun of it. Bad taste, there's a lot of bad taste I don't like. I mean, you look at what Trump's White House looks like. It looks like Jeff Koons without heart history or irony or art knowledge if he decorated it. I mean, there are things that are bad taste that aren't funny to me. There's things that are shocking that aren't funny to me. And often when I see reviews of new movies, when the critic says it's very John Motors-esque, I usually hate that movie. Really? Yeah, because they're trying too hard. Mm. And they're just being gross. So they're, just, they're not trying to change anything. They're not trying to change how you think. So 
I don't find, I never tried to just be gross or, you know, I get it. The end of Pink Flamingos was gross, but it was also at the time that pornography became legal. Deep Throat came out. It was a commentary in a weird way about what can't you do anymore. And Mm -hmm. then you could do that. There wasn't a law against it. Today, there is. There is a law against it. It's the only thing. They have two things they can't show. No, one, that. Eating shit? At underage, yeah. No scat. Wow. I didn't know that. I thought you could just do anything you wanted with shit no. if you wanted to. No. As long as you were a consenting adult. Nope. Well, Before. they police themselves, mm. I think. There is no MPAA of the, of, of the porn industry. Yeah. And now that porn's free, it's lost its appeal. I think you need a guilt tax with porn. I think you should overpay with porn. Free porn to me, there's something missing. Yeah, you write about how it's too readily available. The shame is missing. (laughs) Well, that actually leads me to ask you another question about kind of thinking, obviously, as we head into June, we're looking at the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots, which is not to say that that's the beginning of a gay movement, but the way that we typically kind of like market in American history. As somebody who's kind of been working in culture across those decades, like how do you process the sweep of history from that period to today? Well, Stonewall, what I like about it, it was hardly a chic gay bar. It was hustlers and prostitutes mostly. Yeah. And I love that it was Judy Garland's death day, which is such a cliche. Could that possibly be true that it really was the same right. day? Right. Well, guess we never really know exactly. It seems yeah. like you're kidding. That couldn't be. It was that gay a day. It's too perfect. But still, I love that they just fought the cops. You know, for the yeah. first time, they put it down. To me, when it started later was that I was at a Black Panther rally at Yale and Jim Ferrat came out and gave a gay rights speech and it was for free Huey Newton rally in front of mm. all the left-wing straight guys, and they were horrified. Yeah. And it really was great. And then the women who we, I still think we owe lesbians a huge yes. honor for the ACT UP movement because they started it, and they did not get AIDS. They didn't have to be in mm. this. Very few lesbians got AIDS. They were some of the first warriors that went to battle with it. So I've always been very pro-lesbian. <laughs> You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK Studios in sunny Studio City. We're speaking with John Waters, the famous film director and author most recently of Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Filth Elder. We now return to that conversation. In this book, as you're talking about your productions, uh, you'll go through and mention people who worked on the movie who are now departed. Yeah. Um, in a way that I, it was a nice nod, and and you seem to be pretty rigorous with that. You talk about Divine's death in the yeah, because it happened right in the, when we're making hairspray. Yeah, and also you talk about you know the death of your parents and your brother and kind of getting on with the show, not letting that deter you. Well, that you. was the thing. Yeah, that my mother I knew was going to die. She was in hospice, and I had to go and leave and do a tour. And she would have approved. I did the tour the day she died. I didn't come out on stage in a comedy tour in Germany and say, my mother died today and make jokes about it. But right. I did the show. The show must go on. Right. Because if you're sick, you get out of the contract. But if someone you dies... You don't get out of the contract, and you owe the money for the show. My mother would have approved that. I got home for the funeral. Yeah. Very good. That's that's commendable. But I I, I wonder, talking about, you know, the sweep of history from Stonewall, thinking about AIDS, losing so many people to AIDS, and and, then thinking about losing someone who you were so close with at at the height of their fame. Divine didn't die of AIDS. No, I know. A lot of people assume that. Of a heart attack, as you mentioned. I'm wondering if, did that change... After Divine Step, did, did that change the way you lived your life? Certainly, did it but don't you something? think every generation has their own horrible thing? I mean, I never 
went to Vietnam, and I didn't know anybody that died in Vietnam, but many people did. And those same people that knew all the people that died later, did they know anybody that died of AIDS? Maybe not. Right. There's each generation has a terrible thing that happens, and now it's opioids. So uh, it's it's always something that's happening, and it strikes each time in a different way, always to the creative community. Mm-hmm. They're prone to suicide. They're prone to overdosing. They're prone to lots of things because they're delicate people. <laughs> right, right. But so it, so you pragmatic about it. You kind of carried on. You didn't well, feel didn't that there was a choice. Right. I mean, uh, you know, after Divine died, I starred Johnny Depp. I mean, it was sort of the opposite way to go. You know, <laughs> I didn't ever really have another drag. And Divine was not trans. Divine never dressed as a woman except when we made movies. He didn't want to be a woman. Uh-huh. I never called him she except when he was in the costume. Right. Yeah. And he played men at the end of his last movie. He played a man. And he um, wore men's suits and stuff at the end. So in the beginning, he was a drag queen, but he made fun of Even the drag queens hated him because he'd show up with carrying a chainsaw with fake scars on his face and drag, <laughs> you know. And then they were kind of square. I think the one thing Divine did is all drag queens are cool now, pretty much. They all have some kind of edge, you know, yeah, yeah. with such great names. Euretha Franklin is still my favorite. <laughs> my favorite drag name. <laughs> How did you meet Divine? I heard that you guys... Well, just Divine lived up the street. His parents moved and they ran a day nursery and he was the only child. And really how I met him was my friend Carol, who was sort of a bad girl in high school, who was my friend. She looked exactly like Dawn Davenport as a schoolgirl in uh, Female Trouble. Mm -hmm. She knew Divine and they would play cards and gamble for pimple medicine because they all used it to wear on their lips then. You always put clearasil on your lips, and everybody had the whole face and the lips were all one color, white lipstick and that whole thing. Oh, gosh. So they used to gamble for that, and she introduced me to him. That's how I met him. And did you hit it off right away? Yeah, and I knew that, yes, and he knew these other crowd that was like sort of gay beatniks and stuff, and, and we hooked up with all my suburban friends who were mostly straight. All were mm-hmm. straight, really. And then we all took LSD together, <laughs> and then we bonded, <laughs> and then we went downtown looking for counterparts and met beatniks and hippies and everything. And and that's how we all became friends. And you, you talk about, you just mentioned this like creative circle that you were a part of. How do you think you all came together just by virtue of being on the margins? Because we, we didn't fit in anywhere, you know, but yet we hang around. Some of them were jocks. Some of them were gay, some were black, some were white, girls. I had a girlfriend, it was that long ago. Uh, and um, it was, we all just didn't fit in anywhere else. So we, and I remember when we went downtown and first started hanging out with black people, the black cops would stop us and say, you can't do, this is not Greenwich Village. You can't do this. This was in Baltimore. You just, yeah, you just can't yeah. do this, really. Because mm-hmm. it would be rich girls, too, you know, in private mm-hmm. school girl uniforms, you know. And so Hairspray really was the story of me, in a way. Oh, oh interesting. Do you miss that? Miss because what? Being, well, because one of the things that you write yeah. about in the book is you belong, no, right? I, you I know, don't want to be, uh, you know, a 73-year-old. I can't be an anarchist. I own three homes. Yeah. <laughs> no. Do I want to go backwards? Do I want to go make an underground movie? No. No. I did that. I never want to go backwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do I? No, I find it 
lovely that I get, you know, French medals and I got the Writers Guild Award for Lifetime Achievement. I, I receive them with no irony. I think it's absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. Do I want to go back? And, no, that's why people say, oh, well, you could make a, mo- you could make a movie for a million dollars. Well, what am I supposed to go to people? They still want movie stars and music. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to go to people and say, look, I've only made 17 movies. Will you work for nothing? I can't yeah. do that. Yeah. Or people say, why don't you use Kickstarter? Same answer. I own three homes. Why what am I going to be begging, you know, out in the public? I think it would work very well. Yeah. I don't think you yeah, have to beg. Yeah, I, I would never do that, yeah. though. But I panhandled then. I, I can't do it now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk in the book about how hard in some ways it is to get, um, like, an independent film made. It's even harder days. now. It's much harder than it was when I did it. Because when I did it, I'd say from even Crybaby on, it was to make an independent movie of $7, 8000000 million was a routine budget. Now it's one. Really? Yeah. If you can get it made at all, movies need to be a hundred thousand or a hundred million. I'm afraid today there's very little in the middle. So and how? I've, so that seems hard than to not be able to. I mean, I know you've done it a ton hard. of That's other things. That's why I write books yeah. and I do spoken word shows. Mm-hmm. And but I've had three deals where they paid me to write movies that didn't get made. So I deal with Hollywood, and that's fair. That's fair. They pay you. It's part of the contract. I I have no complaints about Hollywood. It has treated me very fairly. Given these changing conditions, though, in the in the kind of stu- the old studio system, certainly New Line is very different. Well, but New Line started out as a tiny little independent company that distributed Reefer Madness and Pink yeah. Flamingos. And when it went on before it became Warner Brothers, uh, it did the three Lord of the Ring movies. Uh, mm. And Warner Brothers now distributes all my movies, all the old ones, Pink Flamingos, everything. And they're great to work with. Now, so I guess what I'm wondering, though, is like, do you see, how do you see, especially now that you're kind of, you know, an elder? Um, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you use the title in your book. Um, uh, so now that you're kind of like looking back, I mean, how do you see your legacy? Like, do you see any kind of like younger filmmakers that you feel are like carrying forward? Well, I don't think there's a young John Waters, but I think that I've made it all a little freedom of more of them to use bad taste. I mean, I certainly love Gaspar Noe's movies. I love Todd Salance's. I like foreign feel bad movies. I like (laughs) Lars von Trier. I like, there's a lot of (laughs) troublemakers. It's a real feel bad. There's some real troublemakers out there, but those films make me feel good. Well, what about Harmony Corinne? We were talking about that before the show. Yeah, I think Spring Breakers is one of the best movies ever. Incredible. So good. So yeah, I'm and well, Werner Herzog's still making movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's lots of them I still like. Yeah, I still go to the movies. Yeah, I put my ten best list every year as an art form. And um, I uh, there's a good filmmaker in Baltimore named Matt Porterfield has made three movies. That's really really good. I don't think his films are like mine at all, but I think they're really sure. really good. What's your favorite movie that you've seen in the last three months? Let me think. The last three months, I would say Climax by Gaspar Noe, definitely, mm, which is okay. really a shocker. And <laughs> and it has the worst LSD trip in it. And as you know, I took LSD in my new book at 70 years old. And so if I had <laughs> yeah, seen that Stoll, movie right? before I did it, I would have never done it. So <laughs> I'm glad I saw it after. Do you keep a list, an ongoing list? I do list a of... diary, yeah, because I oh. do my 10 best list. Right, but uh, but how about of, mo- like, of ideas for films that you would oh. want to make? I have in my office like a lot of cubby holes. Some is movie ideas, some books ideas, some is miscellaneous, and I just, art ideas, I just throw them in there, different so, ones, yeah. Uh, and then if you're looking for something to yeah, do, then you sometimes just pull I'm them out a book, of the cubby I pull holes? out idea and put it in this one, yeah. Yeah. So and I have pads in every, it's like the worst cliche of a writer. You know, I have pads in every car, every room in my house. Because if I get an idea, just put it down. And uh, the worst is when you dream and you're in the middle of writing a book, you dream you're writing it and you wake up and think, oh, that's great. And then you write it down the next morning you wake up, it 
doesn't even make any sense <laughs> or anything. It's, I mean, the, you can read the writing, but it's like, huh? You know, it's like surreal gibberish, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about as I was thinking about your movies is that one, one thing that happens in almost all of them is the attempt, even through humor, to kind of like bring different people together. Like the, there's a, a kind of very utopian, I think, togetherness that's at the heart of all of your movies, like a, a looking to kind of bridge differences and to make fun of what those well, differences thank you, mean. Because I agree with that. I'm not a separatist. Yeah. I don't want to hang around with all people that are just like me. Exactly. I, I want to. I'm not attracted to people who are just like me. I want to be different people. I want to hear their worst nights. I want to meet people that aren't in show business. I want to meet uh, people. I want to hear people's stories. I'm my beat is the unfathomable behavior of the great unwashed public. But okay. But then that that said, like, what do you make of this contemporary moment where it seems like everybody's off in their own corners? I think and... it's. A, I think it's terrible in a way. I, I think it's. A, that's why I think we do have to continue. I know a few people that I like that voted for Trump. It's amazing to me. Mm. Tab Hunter voted for Trump. Yeah, he voted for Reagan, too, I remember. He always was like that. He's old school. And people have the right to, and I understand why some people vote for Trump, because we make them feel stupid. And uh, you can't do that to the the enemy. And they love him, and they're all going to vote, every single one of them, because they love how mad he makes us. And I would, too, if I was right. one of them. It's I a feeling it. of retribution. And yeah. he did say he was going to do everything he is doing. Yeah. So now we have 27 candidates. They should all have a big meeting and decide we're all quitting but two of them because I want to win. Yeah. They're going to destroy each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Debating, should the Boston bomber be allowed to vote? Give me a break. You know, that's the kind that you lose. You can't win any votes with debating that kind of subject or or political correctness to extremes. Even if you believe the answer, you know, you, you have to win. Pick your battles. What do you think are the battles then that we should be fighting? I think you're absolutely right. The the battles that we should be fighting is, you know, I wish there are, you know, the Republicans all look good now compared to what he is to me. You know, Mm. the other ones, even Bush looks like a savior compared to what he was like. But I, I think that we have to go back to telling the truth. And I think that we have to be presidential. And I think that we have to be international. And, and I think honor our allies, not the people. That, why does he go for all the ones that we're against? You know, the ones. Because they're dictators and that's I what know, he wants he, to be. I know. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I mean, when will some people realize that? But maybe some of those people want to have a dictator. That's a scary thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Let's talk about acid instead. Right. Uh, <laughs> Maybe remember the time when, when who was it that went? Grace Slick and Abby Hoffman went to Trisha Nixon's wedding and they were going to put acid in the punch bowl and got caught. I've heard uh-huh. this anecdote. wasn't yeah, there. Uh, but, but I wasn't either. But it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. They didn't because... She was invited somehow, but she, because she went to the same college or something. Mm. But then, as soon as she saw her date was Abby Hoffman, they stopped them both. <laughs> <laughs> after your, after you took acid, which I hadn't book. taken acid in fifty years, mm-hmm. and uh, I took it with Mink Stoll, who's my oldest friend, one of my oldest friends, and. Uh, I was really, if I knew how strong it was, I would have really been scared. I'm not like these microdoses you pussies take. <laughs> and, uh, so, we all microdose this yeah, morning. It, yeah. So yeah. Uh, it was, um, I don't have to ever do it again. It was like hitchhiking across the country. I did for my other book. I don't have to do it again. <laughs> yeah. But I was great. I had a great time and it clears out some cobwebs. And I'm not telling young people to do it. I'm telling old people to do it. 
only if they did it then and had good memories and never a mm. bad trip, I think you'd have another good one. Maybe once. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, but you have to get really good acid. Now, that is hard. And I knew I had a lot of connections. It took eight months to get the really pure good acid because bad eight acid is- to find acid? Well, I wanted the good, the good kind. Of, I wanted, <laughs> you know, I wanted it from Timothy Leary beyond the grave, really. Uh, so- uh, yeah, and it was pure. Even bef- when I had when I was young, I remember it took three days to recover from it. it didn't this at all? You know, I mean, it was I was hallucinating for twelve hours. But then <laughs> when I went to sleep, I woke up the next day. I felt fine, which I never ever did in the sixties when I took it. Did you have like a recurrent theme or something that well, you I didn't came have... away from where you thought you had a no? I just saw. I remember that thing you can look up online where there's some test in the fifties where they give this woman LSD, and she's just saying. You can't see it. I, I feel so sorry for you that you can't see this. <laughs> and uh, I do feel that in a way that anything's possible. It opens up, you know, it was, but it was beautiful for me. It was a bonding experience. I never had a bad trip ever. I, but I saw little mice running around and stuff, but it was, I thought, oh, it's hallucination. You know, it wasn't like. It's like your Cinderella it wasn't fantasy. Horrible. <laughs> yeah, they weren't scary. It wasn't Willard or Ben. You know, it wasn't like. <laughs> It, it was a nice little mice. And the pictures were spinning around and music sounded great and the flowers grew huge and you, they would get little again like Audrey and the little fan, shop of horrors or whatever that plant was called. So um, it was a good experience. I did it in Provincetown on a beautiful night with with my friend Mink and another friend, Frankie Rice, who's a younger guy. That is, None of us had our boyfriends or anybody, their girlfriends or anybody that would be romantic you know we wanted mm. to all be on even playing field you know <laughs> and uh and before you know mink said please if anybody finds god keep it to yourself right. <laughs> so we didn't have any overly spiritual moments but it was spiritual in a great kind of way it was it was exciting and it's amazing that if that little whoever discovered that can do that god knows there's anything in the world on another planet you can't even imagine the possibilities that are out there that no one will ever know in a in years so that's hopeful to me are there other things you look forward to doing as you get older well I'm writing a novel now so I like that's something new although the first part of Carsick was fiction when I thought up the best and worst rides and then I've written 17 movies they're all fiction but it's different than a novel so um, yeah that would be probably the next thing yeah do you, can you tell us at all what the novel like? Well, I tell you the or... same thing I've said to everybody. It's called Liar Mouth, and it's about a woman that steals suitcases in airports. <laughs> which I thought of today it would have been so easy. The airport was so crowded, and who always comes over in the airport here? Well, not always. It's happened to me three times. Is TMZ, but they wait in the oh. airport. But you think it's just a kid, a fan, because it's just a young person with a tiny little camera. And then they yeah. start asking yourself, you say, wait a minute, this is beyond a fan. <laughs> but then they identify themselves. I'm always nice to them. But they're always there. I thought, how did you know? I, was, I think they just wait for anybody that's getting off a plane. Or well, I don't know. This also makes me wonder, how do you, How I don't mean your creative process, but I mean, like, how? where does the inception for the idea come from? Because a lot of times in, in the book you're talking about, oh, I just thought, well, Maybe we should do this. That sounds yeah. great. Like, well, is because it, is it I just read all the time. That's why. You know, I read six newspapers a day. I don't know a writer that doesn't read the New York Post every day. Mm. I mean, come on. Even if you don't the headline the writing politics. alone is great. Yeah. yeah. So um, I just read all the time. I eavesdrop. I watch people. I listen. I like to hear people's stories. I'm nosy. So um, <laughs> I think it all comes from that. I think all writers, no matter what, are that. Do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, kind of just um, so that we can wrap up here. What? advice would you give 
to kind of a younger person either starting out as a filmmaker or a writer or some young creative? Well, the, I've said it before, but the, a no is free. So it's a life of rejection. Right. So basically get over your fear of that. And you only yeah. need one person to say yes. It's like hitchhiking. If every car stopped, it's a traffic jam. It's not good. <laughs> so um, to to also... Try to learn the business that you're in, too, because you might have the best idea in the world, but then what? You know, yeah. You've got to yeah. find out how you do it. So if you're an artist, go to every single gallery in your city and figure the one that likes has the work that most like yours and approach that one. If you're a movie maker, see every movie. Read Variety. Read The Hollywood Reporter. Find out what the film festivals are, how you get in, who are the distributors these days that are buying weird little movies. you got to find all that stuff out, too. Mm. And I was always interested in that. That always, to me, was, was exciting, too. The practical side and of it. And if you, you know that side, you can sell yourself better like when i would go in with the movie idea i always had a fake ad campaign to show them and they were impressed because that meant i I know we got to sell this right right, i'm on your side you know Uh, we got to make money here so you can't go in and just say oh i'm an artist you know it doesn't work there's not called (laughs) show it's called show business it's a business it's not called show art absolutely how do you think you got so good at show business because I had to be, because mm-hmm. I wanted to keep doing it. And how do you think? You think it was easy to get those movies made? My God. No, it looks hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, <laughs> it was not the easiest idea to pitch either. But I figured a way to always sound like, and I believe that they would all make money. I really did. <laughs> so I might be crazy, but I always, I wasn't lying when I went in there. You could see the opportunity, in other I words. I could yeah. see that it was possible, yeah. All right. Well, we're going to have to end there. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking with for having me. John Waters, author most recently of Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Filth Elder. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 